Chapter 4 The early morning was damp. Little droplets of dew hung in the air, clinging to anything they met. Dense forest around them muffled the wind. The monotonous sound of the wooden wheels of the dirt road was a low-pitched crackle, and the only sound Lydikai had heard for at least three hundred and sixty-ten breaths. He tried to stop counting. Hunched in the driver's seat was a figure mostly covered by a beige coarse cape. From two torn holes in the back of it, their two wings shot out, battered-looking and folded against their body. It seemed as if half the feathers that should be on them were gone, and the ones still attached to the zigzag-shaped appendages looked sticky and oily. Occasionally, the driver shook them to get some of the damp off them. Lydica wasn't sure it worked. The road was everything but even. At the worst parts, Lydikai felt as if he was sitting atop a four-legged animal rather than a stiff wooden carriage on account of the way the wheels rolled into different holes in every direction. Despite all that, Crow was still sleeping. The night had been spent on the carriage, and Lydikai was unsure he had slept at all. He had been looking at Crow jealously several times during the night, and also for a while now, after having decided it was morning enough to sit up. He was increasingly impressed by the other Ori's ability to sleep and to stay snoring through the jerky experience. Crow was wearing a simple dark green cloak, its hood pulled over their face to cover everything but their mouth. When it seemed the limit for what was logically possible to sleep through had been reached, Lydikai tore his eyes from the hood-covered Ori on the bench in front of him and instead turned to look towards the road they were leaving behind. They had made it through the mountain pass proper before night had fallen the previous evening. Lydikai wasn't sure what he had been expecting, but the vertigo of passing below the enormous jagged mountains had been enough for him to simply not look at anything but the wide gaps between the floorboards of the carriage the entire time. He had always thought the mountain chain had gotten its name from how it looked on a map, a serpentine slither at the western edge of the Kajiza. Now he wondered if the name hadn't rather come from the way this passage snaked narrowly through the tall mountains. He was at a loss, trying to figure what had formed it. It seemed as if a gigantic nail had simply scraped away this tiny slithering passage as an afterthought. Right now he was just relieved they had left that claustrophobic corridor behind, and also admittedly impressed by the landscape. He had never been to White Midril before. He realised he had imagined the flora akin to the one further north, in Demiri, Large dealwood forests, sparse ground vegetation, fog. It was nothing like that. At first it had all been a wall of green. Not the unison, identical shades of a green apex, but a myriad of different hues that seemed to move. After a while, his eyes adjusted, and he had realised the forest wasn't moving, it was just a dense tapestry of different plants and trees. Needles and leaves, choking carpets of evergreen around thick trunks, light green flowers with small yellow dots, moss and lichen. The wide dirt road winded among the verdure like a bright dry brook. 
Lady Kai's nose had just as his eyes needed some time to adjust to the sensorial rush, but now he could tell it smelled wonderful. Different wafts of sweetness, earth, and sharp tanginess took turns to reach him. He tried to calculate what day of the week it was and realized it must be Garadas, the third day of the six-day week. Had he still been at Egelin, this would have been a day of outdoor classes, mostly focusing on bigger elemental spells. Those classes were a double-edged situation for Lejikai. He enjoyed the change of scenery, the ability to practice some of the more flamboyant, or destructive, if one wishes, magic he knew. But the volatility was stressful. The combination of giddiness and nerves in his students that always turn into unpredictable magic. And too often, that unpredictability tended to spread to him. He had often ended those classes early. Closing his eyes, he brought two fingers up to the space between his eyebrows, underneath his tandia, the zigzag fount in the middle of his forehead. The deep, headache-inducing crease his fingertips tried to smooth out must have been there for the last few hours. Or days. Or years. He sighed, pressing the spot, unsure if it helped. Everything was so different from his life at the Institute. Time seemed to move faster. He had done more things, thought more thoughts in these last few weeks than he had in several years. It was different but not wholly unfamiliar, he reminded himself. The carriage hit a particularly deep hole, and with a loud yelp and wildly flailing arms, Crow fell off the bench. Step, step, step. Soft leather on stone. Dry, dead skin on wet, cold floors. Careful not to step in something. Realizing the whole floor is something you don't want to step on. Clong, clong, clong. Expensive wood against rusty iron bars. Two hard things used to separate. Meeting in a show of performative authority. Are you really certain? Is this not just a waste of time? Information will always be an advantage, Diane. You know you cannot trust them. Familiar voices, thinking she was still too lost to register them. The old language, spoken as if they owned it. The first voice was pride, the second, submission. Opportunity presenting itself. The excitement set in like cinders under her skin. Clong, clong, clong. The sound of the long gold-collared cane hit the iron bars to Lon's cage again, imploring, like wanting the attention of an animal. Marcelon, I would like for you to come here and talk to us. Lon didn't move. The light from the torches outside only reached half an Ori's length into this hole in the wall. She sat in the darkness, watching. Diane Oporu, the Justitia 
of Eile Tis was very good at keeping up appearances. Lon had always admired that about her. The tall Ori could no doubt give many of the knights in Bloodmore a run for their ill-gotten gains. Lon studied the Ori outside the cage in silence. She enjoyed watching. Purple robes clung to the Diane's stately frame, making sure one saw the idea of taut muscle underneath and the shape of the pommel at her side. Golden leaves were embroidered on the robes, matching the tone of her skin, reflecting torchlight, sending flickers of glitter into her dark brown comb-back hair and up into her turquoise irises. There was nothing subtle about her appearance. Everything about her screamed advantage. Even Lon might have bought it, had she never met the Diane before. But she had. Several times. And the one thing she was always looking out for in the Justitia's surface was cracks. This time, it was easy. The Diane's usually so steady green-blue eyes darted around the dark space in front of her, and the tan-coloured hand around her golden cane was all but cramping. Lon sensed a faint smell of sweat. Though that might come from the Ori next to the Diane. Rai, the nervous wreck of an assistant the Diane always kept beside her, was there for contrast. Lon was convinced of that. Every word he uttered seemed to shake in anticipation of a reprimand of some sort. He was probably as tall as Oporu, but his posture made it seem as if he was at least a head shorter. His hands were always halfway between himself and the Diane, ready to catch every dropped note, every discarded piece of trash, every last bit of spittle. Lon grinned out into the darkness. She enjoyed seeing the Diane like this. She enjoyed it a lot. And here I thought you would never be smart enough to be afraid of me, she said. But it was almost a growl. It had been a while since she had talked. Consonants were muddled, vowels stuck somewhere around her chest. The Diane was silent, and it seemed it was unintentional. She had flinched at the sound of Lon's voice, Kane making the same clong against the iron bars as it had before. Lon saw the Diane's lips becoming thinner. Master Lon, please let us talk in a more civil... Lon was faster than she had ever been before. Half a breath and she was pressed up against the bars fully visible in the light of the torches. As if of an opposite magnetic pole, the Diane flew back into Rai behind her, who fell in his effort to keep the Diane upright. The Diane stood, panting, the cane held out in front of her like a weapon. Lon saw the founts on her face, and the few visible below her long sleeves give off a dim blue light. The real weapon. She wondered what shocked the Diane most. Granted, Lon had not seen herself in her entirety for a while, but the parts of her body she could see were changed. It was slow, but definite, 
and the way she had been treated in here had not exactly helped in producing an appealing presentation. Grinning wide, running her tongue over sharp, pointed teeth, she relaxed her posture in leaning against the bars, trailing the short claws on her hands against the rust. The sound made her teeth itch. She kept going. Lazily, she scratched the bristly hair on her stomach. Marcelon, the Diane started again, unable to look Lon in the eye and hiding that fact by fuzzing over her still immaculate-looking robes. Just Lon, Apora. We have moved past formalities in our relationship, wouldn't you say? She was starting to find her way around the sounds again. The longer teeth proved a bit of a problem, and her tongue seemed to be in the way more often than not. I need some information from you, Lon. The Diane's voice was quickly stable again. Lon could smell on her that it was only posturing. Oh, really? Lon said, a chuckle coming from deep in her stomach. I need a lot of things, and I'm quite sure you would never give me any of them. Eager to hear what you have to offer for my services, I have to admit. It regards your blood kith acquaintance. Lon's eyes went a little wider, and then she frowned. Why would the Diane need to know anything about Derry? Then again, knowing her, Derry probably provided one reason every ten breath for people to track her down. Also, how did the Diane know Derry was blood kith? Hmm, many questions, only bringing more reluctance to part with any information. Still waiting for that prize. Lon hissed, tensing to press against the bars again, grinning at the Diane, reflexively balking. I am sure we can come to an agreement. There was a shift in the air. Lon wondered if the Diane thought she wouldn't notice, or that she would be scared into inaction. Granted, no founts lit up at the magic the Diane focused, but if you knew what to look for, what to feel for, you noticed despite what was presumed. The energies around them homed in, narrowed. Everything pulled towards Diane or Porter. Every particle, every thought, every attention. To the Diane's defense, this would probably have worked in the past. Now, it was almost amusing. That Diane tried to manipulate with something as crude as mind magic. Imagine the powerful frowns in her precious eyelid tears. With a grin, an all-encompassing anger hit Lon sharper than anything she had felt before. To her frustration, the magic started to work. The Diane was skilled. Lon could already feel the weight in her arms, heavy with refusal, heavy with a want to obey. Your arrogance will be your undoing, my dear. Lon growled, words like spears against the Diane. It must have been more vicious than the Diane had expected, because she hesitated. It was all Lon needed. Her sinewy long arms tore themselves from the compulsion and found the extravagance clinging to the Diane's clammy skin. Short, jagged claws cut into her, the other hand finding the nape of the Diane's neck, 
pulling her up against the bars on the other side of Lon. Sharp, cold fear turned the Diane's pupils into small, darting spots. She breathed with difficulty through the fingers enveloping her throat from the back of her neck. Lon was surprised at how long the fingers were, even though they were her own. Useful. She sniffed the air around the Diane, loudly, mouth half open, intoxicatingly fear-heavy. Please, the Diane tried before Lon pushed at her larynx to stop her. Diana Porus screwed her eyes shut, seemingly trying to focus on keeping her breathing going at all. Now, is this the time to kill you, I wonder? Lon said, close enough to the Diane's face to smell her breath. It was foul. Or do I want to savor the fact that you have misjudged me so severely? She wanted to lick the sweat off the Diane's face. Suddenly, Rai was at the Diane's side again. Lon had forgotten he existed. Feebly, but somehow also feverishly, his little fingers were clawing at Lon's hand, trying to pry it off the Diane's neck. His founts were lit up like a shining pattern all across him, peering out of every sleeve and below every skirt in stark white against his pale, ruddy skin. Lon felt little sparks of electricity from his fingertips, but all it actually sparked was that impulse to lick the Diane's face again, but not stop there. I think I would like to keep your fear alive for a little longer. She wheezed against the Diane's face before throwing her to the ground, instead grabbing hold of Rai before he could move. His fear was louder, brighter, unhindered. She needed it. She had to have it. The iron bars of her cage did not have enough room between them to allow for anyone to go through, not even someone of as unassuming a volume as Rai. Despite that, Lon made his body end up on her side of the cage. The sound that Diane let out at the sight indicated it was not pleasant to look at. Lon couldn't stop, wouldn't stop. The fear practically pulsated out of Rai now, and she did all she could to partake, to make it hers, devour it. Blood under her claws, on her hands, down her throat, bone meeting teeth, fear slowly silenced. She stood up when Rai's fear had completely faded. With an intoxicated shudder, she realized she could push away the iron bars. They parted under her pressure as if they were saplings. It took all her willpower not to taste of the Diane as she had tasted Rai. But she heard the thundering sound of feet approaching, felt the vibrations of the Diane's magic calling her precious ribs to her. This was Lon's chance to run, the only chance she would get. No matter. She would let the Diane's fear mature like wine. Then she would come back for her. It hadn't 
only been a particularly deep hole in the road. It had been a hole, and then several more dug by hands. Because of said holes, the carriage had stopped. The driver had, uncannily quickly compared to their frozen hunching over up until now, dived backwards and run into the surrounding forest, nowhere to be seen. Crow had scrambled to their feet, shouting after the fleeing driver, but had fallen silent at the sound of another voice, this one from the front of the carriage. Didikai was standing up, jaw clenched, staring into the knocked arrows of what he assumed was a group of Ori wanting his and Crow's valuables. Hopefully that was all they wanted, anyway. The arrows seemed alarmingly close to leaving their bows. There were four of them, all dressed in some sort of attempt at unison, dark green fabric that made for good camouflage here. Their faces were smeared with a greyish colour, matching the surrounding trunks quite well, in a pattern that might once have been skulls. Throw down what you have, and we'll let you move on. Simple, said one of them, the only one with no bow. As she sauntered closer, a dagger spinning around her hand in a way that made Lidikai doubt gravity, he saw no founts on her. And no hexbrands, something he was unused to looking for, admittedly. As she moved closer, eyes steady on both of them, Lidikai felt a shockingly strong wave of heat run through him. Involuntarily, he felt the founts on his underarms respond, and was very happy he was wearing so many layers. He could have understood fear, that seemed like a logical response in this situation, but he was furious, and the only thing that seemed to be stopping him from acting on that was his confusion over the feeling. A touch on his shoulder made an actual flame trickle between his fingers. It was Crow who had touched him, and they drew back their hand instantly as they noticed the flare. They raised their eyebrows a little, shaking their head at Lidikai, which didn't help him at all. The waves did not subside, they seemed to only get stronger. Before anything else could happen, however, Crow jumped down from the carriage in one swift motion, and Lidikai closed his eyes, anticipating the sound of arrows through a body. It didn't come. As he opened his eyes again, puzzled, he saw Crow simply standing in front of the four robbers, hands held out casually in front of them. The four green-clad Ori stared at Crow, not with fear but some sort of mute, paralyzing fascination. I understand your situation, believe me, Crow said. But I think it would be in your best interest to leave. See, my friend up there. Lydica tensed at the motion Crow made back towards the carriage, but not a single one of the robbers tore their eyes from the ore in front of them. He's an auger. You know what that means, don't you? Something seemed to shift. Lidikai felt it, and it almost made him nauseous. He recognized this feeling, when the ribs had showed up outside of Nora's. He should have asked Crow about this when they sat down at the inn. Why hadn't he done that? His breath shallowed further as he saw the vibrations in the air spreading from Crow to the bodies of the bandits, snaking its way up to their eyes, widening them in shock. For a moment, he felt as if he was standing with his nose up against a painting, Afraid to move, afraid he would shatter reality if he did. Shit, 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 was all he heard in decreasing volume as the robbers stumbled over each other and ran off into the forest. 
The world returned to its usual dimensions in a shudder. Lidikai saw Crow's shoulders slump. Without another word, they climbed up in the driver's seat and took the reins. The grey drifter pulling the carriage, a beetle reaching up to Crow's shoulder at wither height, had reacted as if nothing had happened since they stopped. It stood still, with only its long antennae constantly twitching around its little oval head. Its black-red body had a metallic sheen, not unlike that of a mender, glittering with the wetness of the indecisive moisture in the air. Hey! Crow suddenly shouted, very loudly, in the direction of where the driver ran off to. Lidikai flinched violently. You coming back? Crow fell silent, listening for a few breaths, then shrugged, picking up the steering stick that the driver thankfully had left behind. They reached it out to poke at the ridge of the middle segment of the beetle's body, and it started to move with an enthusiastic jump forward. Lidikai very nearly fell over. Holding on to the bench lining the carriage, he was just staring at Crow's cape-covered shoulders in front of him. That was alarmingly subtle, he eventually said, sitting down behind the driver's seat, staring at Crow's profile. The other Rory didn't move. Kind of the point of it. Sorry to steal your thunder. They shrugged with a strange smile, or bonfire, or whatever. Lidikai bit the inside of his bottom lip in silence for a ten breath. Why didn't I ask you about it before? Crow turned slightly towards him, giving him a very incredulous smile. That sounds like a you problem. Lidikai realized a little too late how that question sounded. It sounded like an accusation, because it was, and he was lucky Crow obviously chose to overlook that. Not a fan of deception magic, Lidikai muttered as calmly as he could. Everything had happened so quickly. The leftover energy from his initial anger had fizzled out into static across his skin. It wasn't pleasant. As I am 100% positive I have already told you, neither am I. And you didn't answer my question why you don't. Sounds like me, yeah. Crow sighed sharply. Look, I don't do it at all, normally. But you seemed ready to... I don't even know. What was that about, anyway? You seemed ready to actually kill them. And I don't know about you, but if there is one thing I dislike more than having to dip into the mindfuck pool of magic... It's being an innocent bystander while murder happens. Is that what the hex brands are for? Deception magic. What? Crow turned to look at Lidikai with a surprised start. Their face quickly turned more tense. How would I even do that? These were put on me against my will, or did you miss that part? The rhetorical nature of the question was emphasized by Crow turning away again. Lidikai made a face behind Crow's back. It had just been a simple question. And you use no founts to do magic? Do you think that maybe the hex brands are somehow affecting your practices in some way? Lidikai, Crow said. 
Lydica felt his stomach drop. Something about Crow's tone made him regret ever opening his mouth. I really don't want to talk about this. They continued, much quieter. Very well. Lydica's curiosity had instantly turned into a massive desire for the conversation to be over. The two of them continued in silence. The tension stayed for a while, but shorter than Lydica had expected it to, and eventually settled in muted contemplation. And so it was that the unevenly knit patchwork of chance was utilised, and she was set loose again. The empty spaces and the blood she left in her wake seemed to vibrate, seemed to want to tell the world to beware now, to watch its young, to fear the sheer force of violence. And those of the same mind as she howled in joy and excitement. A hound of chaos was loose again. A sheer force of violence. By the scales of order, watch your young and shut your doors tight. A hound of chaos is loose again. <laughs>